Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape. We engage at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. For today's program, we've come to Miami's Little Haiti. I'm walking around Little Haiti with Carl Just. We're talking about the original demarcations of this community. According to my father, it was relayed to me by him. He felt that Little Haiti started on the south, 36th Street, to the west, to possibly 95, to the north, northwest 81st Street, and to the east, at the railroad tracks on Northeast 4th Avenue. He went from those boundaries to a smaller enclave, and now, two years ago, officially, 54th Street to the south, 62nd Street to the north. That is a super small footprint now. And it's because the area is being rebranded. You've had the design district, Lemon City encroaching from the east, Little River encroaching from the north. And now we just have a parcel, a art space, an intellectual space, a cultural space that's diminishing as every day passes. You were just showing me. You said, do you want to see my dad? The father of Little Haiti. A lot of people in the community call him Pejus because he was the father of the community. If you were a new arrival and you needed to get a social security card, there would be a line outside my father's store and people would bring the forms in. My father would sit with one at a time and go to the form, translate the form. This is before the local government started translating documents into Creole. So where was his record store? At first, in the 70s, was in downtown Miami. And then he moved to somewhere on the 63, 6400 block of Northeast 2nd Avenue. And the finally resting place was on 7800 block of Northeast 2nd Avenue, which he was there for 25 years. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ça va? The thing about Little Haiti, everyone is welcome. And there's this idea of a collective exchange between the various newcomers and those who've been living here since it's been founded. You can go to Chef Creole and you can see people from Venezuela, people from Cuba enjoying a Haitian meal. Or you could come to the Little Haiti Cultural Center and you see Brazilians, you see Latins, African-Americans enjoying the music and the culture. A lot of times, this country has shut the door on Haitians. Those who have arrived have learned the, the art of openness. So where are you taking me right now? Well, we're going to take a walk south of 59th Street. You know, you look to our left, you see a lot of these stores. They don't open till after 11 o'clock. They're mom and pop stores, the beauty stores, the thrift shops. You're beginning to see, as we go from one store to the other, there's empty spots because a lot of these stores, their rent has gone up because this is a very hot area now. And a lot of these mom and pops cannot afford to sustain those rents because a lot of people don't own the building they're in. My dad did not own the building that he, he rented for 25 years. There are developers who see the importance, who understand the identity and cultivating cultural elements of the area. And in those, there are some developers who don't really care about its past, or at least the Haitian past. So right here, we're standing in front of a church, or more storefront church, churches in, in the area before, during the 80s and 90s, but those are, are slowly dwindling. But where you really see the little Hades off the side streets. Let's take a walk to the neighborhood. Bonjour, ça va? Bonjour, ça va? It's a working class neighborhood. It's an immigrant neighborhood. And now it's the new wave of people escaping what's going on in Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil. Those people have means. They come with their set of businesses, they set of contacts. So they're not starting from the bottom, from the pit. They may be coming off the plane. 
<laughs> but they're not coming off the boat. You can't really blame anyone to try to have a better life, and you can't really blame people for having the advantages that they have. But you can question why they don't understand the plight of those who are fleeing persecution, who happen to be dark-skinned and poor. It's very inclusive. You can walk down a little Haiti and you might hear reggae music, you might hear compa, you might hear soca, you might hear bachata, you might hear salsa, and it's natural. Right now, we passed by Ferrito, we heard walk this way. <laughs> Very apropos, I would think, right? You know, you have these new, small, and organic business enterprises, sweat records that sell vinyl records. It's a place where people from the outside can come in. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to sweat records. Where in Little Haiti? Yeah, yeah. It's not like, like, like a landmark. And I'm going to show you what I call the back streets. Now, this experience used to go all the way down in Buena Vista. And Buena Vista got cleaned up, it got gentrified. But this is what most of the Hades get nice houses, good lawns. But you know, when you have immigrants living, coming to a place, you can't turn nobody down. You can't say, look, cousin, you can't live with me. You just make room. Take a good listen. Look how quiet it's become. You have mango trees, palm trees. This could be Haiti. This could be Cuba. This could be anywhere in Latin America. You walk through the streets, it's quiet. There's no arguments, no loudness, no rudeness. And this is what Haitians want. They want to go to a place that reminds them of home. And this area of Miami was perfect for it. Bonjour. Ça va? Ça va bien aussi. So, you know, you have people sit in the morning on their porch. People will greet you, and there's no sense that you're an outsider trying to do harm. You come here in the afternoon, there's people walking the street, people playing dominoes in front of their house. There's people living in their space. This is not an insular community. This is a very open community. Now we have a brewery here. We have a bread company here, a coffee company here, everything low-key. You would never know it's even in this area. Certain mornings you walk around, you can smell the coffee being roasted. Patients do learn vicariously. They can watch, they take the dishwashing job, they put themselves to school, they learn the language, they learn to write it, they learn to read their own language. This is not a place that's poor or deprived. This is where many gems exist. That's going to change. See Sullivan's um, Street Bakery right here. You can see all this construction, all this, all this buildup is occurring. Within five years, you're not gonna recognize this place anymore. You, right now, you're hearing Creole, you're hearing French, but within five years, that may not be the case. We used to have a gallery here called Multitude, which focused a lot on Haitian art, Haitian works. Uh, and then, you know, we just couldn't hold it. What makes this area so good, you can walk to your bus stops. You have major thoroughways like Mountain Second Avenue, Biscayne Boulevard. That could take you downtown, that could, to the south, or that could take you to the north. I just saw a chicken cross the road. Oh yeah, that joke goes by every 10 seconds. Why did a chicken cross the road? To get some veal. As you can see right here, you know, this is home. Bonjour. Qui j'en ai, man? En forme à Québec? Yeah, man. Ça t'a fait. I've been here, man. Turn the machine now. Come up the community, you know? You believe me? I believe you, man. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm always here. You're an artist, right? But I give up. Don't give up, man. Back aside. You can't give up. Why you gave up? Uh, it's a hard job, man. When did you come from Haiti? When you came to Miami? 1996. How's the community changed since 96? Right now it's getting really tougher because on 96 everything was... Uh, you remember Leo Karras? Yeah, I remember Leo. Leo yeah, I remember Leo. Those times I was kind of okay because I was uh, have a... 
job really close to my home. I'll be working on my own since then. Leo is, is a Haitian-owned business. Hired a lot of Haitian, you know, who you know who are, couldn't gain gainful employment in other places. So a lot of places where young arrivals can get jobs, get get the foot planted, are gone. Nice music. Them with them getting stressed sometimes, they pull really help me out. Yeah, he says when he has stress, it's the music he listens to to help him out. Because that's our culture. And how important is that culture to Miami? Tell the truth, the culture is like Miami don't give the culture respect. You know what I'm saying? Our culture, uh, we searching for that so many years for it. But we can't get it, but we're going to get it one day. You understand me? Well, I do understand. Brother, thank right. you for your time. Thank I'll you, be man. through again. All right? Appreciate I that. never lock you. I never let you down, bro. I'm, right. I'm always around, so I bring people around here to tell your story, OK? Thank you, man. OK, my brother. Take care. See? You can't get those things from reading something online. To understand Little Haiti, you have to walk in the shoes of Haitians. I mean, it cosmetically, it's still pretty. It doesn't look like it's... It looks like a place you would see in middle-class Haiti. Compared to Miami, where you have condos, valet service, valet parking, Starbucks, Whole Food. If you come here, it looks like it's depressed. But this is where all the dreams are born. This is where I laid my head, and I dreamed of the possibilities of what my future will become. That's why I never moved out of the area. When people talk about Little Haiti, I don't think they really understand what it truly is. It's, it's beyond just hearing music and it's, it is a gift that's been given to South Florida. It has helped this area to be unique, as unique as the Everglades. That was a walk through Little Haiti with Carl Just. Inside poet Aja Monet's Smoke Signal Studio, we're meeting local activists to talk about art, poetry, and community. A young initiative, Community Justice Project collaborates closely with local organizers and grassroots groups. The team engages in innovative legal work to address issues ranging from women's and immigrant rights to race and economic justice. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty, our duty to win. In June 2018, our summer was among local musicians performing at the first ever Maroon Poetry Festival in Liberty City. The event brought poets and community together to address how gun violence is impacting neighborhoods across the nation. We invite Mina Jagannath and Alea Glenn of the Community Justice Project, along with poet Aja Monet and artist Eddie Arroyo, to talk about the effects of gentrification in Miami. Individual perspectives expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Community Justice Project. Welcome to Fresh Art International, everyone. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Let's first introduce our host because she invited us to be in her studio. Aja, you want to tell us what you want the world to know about you? Well, I'm a poet and I work here in Miami with Community Justice Project, bringing poetry for the people to the community and showing the importance of literacy and the ways that words and language and laws is weaponized against and for us. So figuring out ways that we can be our most free selves. I work as well with Dream Defenders and we started a studio out of our home called Smoke Signal Studio where we do programming and events. And we're sitting there right now. Yes. I love this. Right here. Thank you. Smoke signals. You're sending it out into the world. Yes, we are. I was reading that you're of Cuban-Jamaican descent. Yes. And that you perform in New York at the New York and Poets Cafe. 
Grand Slam. Yeah, I'm originally from New York. I currently live here. I've been living here for about four years. And that's where I grew up in a community of poets and organizers and activists. And so just knowing that culture and what was there, I was seeking that here. And in some ways we were able to find it and in some ways we're creating it for the first time. I think that's very cool. And I know you spoke at the Women's March in 2017, reading from your book. Yes, I was. I love the title of the book, My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. Yes, it is for all mothers and daughters who understand what that title means. Community justice is what brought us here today. And thank you for that. Mina and I met a few months ago. You've co-founded the Community Justice Project in 2015. Tell us about you, where you're from, and how you got involved here in Miami. I am originally from the Northeast. Both of my parents are immigrants from India. Came to Miami about six years ago. Uh, my background is primarily in international human rights, and so just before coming to Miami, I was working as a lawyer in Haiti, post-earthquake time. And uh, some of the work that I was doing there was working alongside grassroots groups to build their power as a lawyer. And when I came to Miami, decided that I wanted to do something similar and found like-minded lawyers, wanted to figure out how best we could be of service to organizers and people who are most directly impacted by the racial justice and human rights issues of our time. So in 2015, uh, originally it started in Florida Legal Services, and then after that we decided to break off in 2015 in light of all that was happening in the country and around the world to build a new project that used law in creative ways to support movements. What are the main communities in Miami that are the most fragile at this moment? At this moment, many of them are historically black or immigrant communities. So that includes Little Haiti, Liberty City, Alapata, Little Havana, West Grove, Overtown. And some of these communities are further along the process than others. But I think we really need to be vigilant about all of them because the city actually has a really interesting zoning mechanism called the Special Area Plan that allows anybody who has over nine acres of land to, in one fell swoop, rezone that whole area. And you know, the spirit of that was to encourage there to be mixed-use development that didn't require lots of different hearings, that kind of thing. But as the developers have rippled outwards from the downtown and Brickell areas, they have started to move into historically residential communities. And so this, these, these types of big developments are putting a lot of pressure on housing prices, land prices, and a whole number of other things in these neighborhoods that are traditionally like working class. Are the people living there getting involved in what you were trying to achieve? Some are. Or are they feeling more like they, they just got to work to make enough money to live, to take care of their families, to get their kids to school? So they yeah. really can't engage politically. No, they, they work like uh, 10 to 12 hour shifts. And also since they work so hard, I mean, it's very difficult to speak out about concerns. Not everybody is necessarily informed about the process. Too often, the community finds out about it after it's already gone through a number of approvals without that much you know, involvement of the broader community. And so part of what we're really trying to do is give life to the processes that exist on the books to allow for community input and actually inform the community about what their right is to speak up, how they might influence a project, how certain benefits might come out of the different projects, to actually just be a part of what is supposed to be a community conversation about this big development that's coming into their neighborhood. It is both like material life and it's also the fact that these are communities, the ones that are being targeted by special area plans. It's made possible by the fact that these are communities that have been historically economically depressed. They've been neglected by their representatives and mm -hmm. municipalities. So when we think about what does it look like when the criteria for mega development are areas that have nine abutting acres together where nothing is there. The logical solution is the areas that had not ever been invested in and areas that are specifically black and brown. It's disturbing, to be quite honest. And so I think the question is not whether 
people should be paying more attention. But in fact, our work as movement folk is to make it possible that we're bringing change closer to people as they are managing the challenges of a life where they're not being supported by the mechanisms that should be looking out for them. And you've brought a colleague with you today, Alea Glenn, with the Community Justice Project as well. You're the researcher in residence there. Right, yes. So sort of jumping off of what Mina said, we're looking for ways to creatively bring the community closer to the policymaking and traditional research spaces that govern their lives and make that accessible. What brought you to this place? I'm originally from New York City, the Bronx, and my early career and personal passion has been about criminal justice reform and racial justice. And then some background and introduction to policy work gave me this interest and opportunity to see things intersecting and was really excited about the work that Community Justice Project is doing. They're doing a lot Oh, yeah, <laughs> they're doing a lot. Also in the studio is Eddie Arroyo, who's Hello. gotten involved with these people. Yes, I have. I, I know Mina. I met her originally from uh, when I was at FAM with Haitian Women Miami, which is now the Family Action Network of Miami. And I'm a big fan of the Community Justice Project. I mean, they do great work. So about Eddie's practice, he documents residential and commercial structures that are about to be demolished and replaced by new development chronicling gentrification in Miami in particular, and one of your points of interest, places of study, has been Little Haiti. That's correct. It's something that the history of the art community in general has taken a part in. It's not a topic that's been thoroughly explored, so it's more like a new uh, genre or discipline in terms of, of a concept being addressed more extensively. I find it fascinating at this point. It's a very uncomfortable topic for many artists that participate in the process of gentrification. That position is where I'm, I'm interested in exploring through the work. And you've all been involved in community actions. What has unfolded here that you've been engaged in? Initially, what had me started on this series was a group exhibition that Miami artists were participating in, which was a normal thing. It's always, especially in Miami, the, the art community is very strong, very vibrant. And there was a particular exhibition called the Little Haiti Country Club that was hosted in uh, one of David Lombardi, which is a property owner in Little Haiti, spaces. There was a town hall meeting to talk about the exhibition and I had questions. And one of the questions I had was that all these Miami artists that were invited to participate in this group exhibition, none of them were of Haitian descent. And apparently this was a conscious decision by the curator at the time, decided that it should be an exhibition about the artists and not about the Haitian community. I wrote a very critical article about it because I was doing a lot of blogging at the time, a lot of art criticism, and that was the first one that was received quite viscerally by the certain members of the art community at the time. Didn't understand how this brand of irony was not constructive mm -hmm. in what was happening there. I wrote a number of other articles basically about the same kind of concepts in terms of the positions artists take and who they serve. Some choose to serve the developers, some choose to serve the community. Sometimes it's a, it's a mixture between the two. Our artists have a lot of agency, so they make decisions on who and how they decide to position themselves, which has uh, been an interesting aspect of what I'm doing through the paintings and the structures I choose to depict through the work which is very traditional, academic, and even uh, folksy in some sense, which is an approach I decided to take. It's purposeful. They're photo-based works that represent almost like a before and after of different spaces. The work is paintings. They use photographs as a reference point. Sometimes I do uh, sketches and watercolors as a reference point as well. It's more about me using the photograph, evoking an emotional response to what I have witnessed within the neighborhood, how different aspects of the community respond to this power dynamic. So tell me about your own personal cultural history. Like, where are you coming from in, in terms of your empathy for this community? I'm from Miami. I was born here. My mom's from Colombia, my dad's from Peru. I grew up in uh, Little Havana which is also going through a lot of change. So right now there are certain 
strategies to try to rebrand it Brickle West or West Brickle for monetary gain, obviously. But it's more about recognizing the history that exists in Miami, which in the past, given my experience, there's been this tendency to exercise methods of erasure when it comes to neighborhoods. For me, it's been a great frustration, especially since our Basel arrived in 2001. So given you know, my own history, and I see what's happening, and, and a lot of people that come in to Miami from a very noble place and good place, but don't realize the overall mechanisms that are putting them in positions that don't serve the community that reside there and contribute to the displacement, which is what we're experiencing right now, right here. There's a lot of frustration, but I'm glad to see that there are people that are more interested in these concerns that we all share at this point. Mina, how have you been involved in this particular issue of social justice in Little Haiti? Housing has long been a piece of work that we have been doing. Even when we were with Florida Legal Services, we worked a lot with public housing residents, buildings of tenants who are being evicted, mobile home parks, um, and we were representing them as groups to either resist displacement or come out with a better outcome for the group as a whole and not just individual tenants or mobile home owners. And we have you know, had a relationship with FOM for a little while, a family action network movement that Eddie had described before. And we had first started getting involved with them because we were supporting a mobile home park that was bought out for which the mobile home owners were being displaced or had had to be, I don't want to say evicted, but yeah, that's pretty purposes. much what it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's evicted. So we worked together with FOM, with Legal Services of Greater Miami, and with other organizers who were working with different mobile home parks uh, around Miami to figure out how do we ensure that folks who had been living there for 20, 30 years were able to have enough time to find a new place, get some uh, money for what is a home, even though they don't own the land underneath the mobile home, they own the mobile home itself, and relocate them into decent housing elsewhere in Miami. And so that's where our relationship with FAM started to grow, and that's also where AJA and Community Justice Project started to experiment a little bit with the use of poetry also in our work. Just to finish up that story, I mean, around that same time in 2016, I think while the murmurings had already become louder in terms of gentrification and change in the Little Haiti community, at that time, I think one of the uh, strategies of the community was trying to figure out if they could actually have Little Haiti designated officially as a neighborhood by the city of Miami. And so we worked with FAM and a number of other community groups helping to get that passed. Um, and that happened in May of 2016. I was so surprised to hear that it was so recent. Yep. Yeah. I was yeah. there. It was incredible. Obviously, it was in City Hall, and it was just the designation went through. For me, it was a very colorful event. But you were able to succeed in giving these people some time yes. that they needed to yes. relocate. Yes, we were able to, to buy them a little bit more time, and they each got some damages for their displacement, but obviously there isn't a sum of money that can really replace 20 years of a lifetime and, and a home, you know, where you have your tree that you planted when you first got there and now it's grown into a centerpiece of the park. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, I think increasingly mobile home parks, which were a source of actual affordable housing in Miami, are disappearing. And we see the gradual phasing out of mobile home parks is accompanying the change of Miami into, into something else. When we learned, and when actually uh, Marlene Bastien from FAM had learned about uh, new developments coming to Little Haiti along Northeast 2nd Avenue, she again, got in touch with us and with a lot of other people to try and put our heads together to figure out what is it that we can do for the community in the face of such extreme development. And that's where we're at right now. Wow. So, Aja, you are behind the Voices Poetry for the People. That's your engagement. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, to piggyback off of what Mina was touching on, a part of that story of the tree came out of a workshop that I remember us discussing. We prompted poem for everyone who were, or residents who were being kicked out and displaced from Little Farm. 
about where they're from and and to describe for us where they're from is in the sounds, the taste, the touch, the songs, the things that really could not be replaced and not just the address and like the house, but to get really descriptive so that I think the stories and the nuance of their stories could be shared. And in that prompt, some people who had a very good grasp on language were able to to write, but also people who were very, just not super confident with their grasp on language were able to really have conversations with each other. And um, we saw the inklings of something that could be really magical and profound and weren't able to fully invest our resources and time into it because Before we people got displaced and at that yeah. point we everyone was dispersed all over Miami so we couldn't necessarily continue to work with that set of folks. What ended up happening was we did some workshops and then people were coming but then as the cases were developing the sense of urgency of their displacement was developing and so like coming to a poetry workshop is not as important as like figuring out whether or not you're going to get a settlement for your home or whether or not your family's going to have to pack up in a few days. So I think there was a, the material conditions that we all face. And I think with language um, and with law, like we're always battling how we can defend people from facing the harsh realities of the ways in which material conditions are negotiated based on law and language. And so for us, poetry was a stepping stone in getting their stories out there and getting people to be able to understand and have some sort of connection to the realities and the conditions that they were living in. But then in light of that and, and having conversations with Mina and Alana, you know, there was an opportunity to apply for a Knight Foundation grant. And Alana and Mina really were so excited about the potential of doing something like this, of sitting down with clients and offering some sort of other direct service to clients so that they could be given the breadth of their stories, that they could felt seen and heard and not just as like a client you know, lawyer relationship. We always find that, you know, when we were putting together any legal papers that you only say what facts are relevant and necessary for the sake of achieving whatever legal outcome you want, but that doesn't do justice to the story as a whole. And so the question was, you know, how do we use poetry and other arts as a medium to really tell the bigger story? Because it's the charge to society more generally is what do we do about the broader context in which people are living. And I was looking at all the projects you're involved in, and I don't know how you sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is one of them, and it's important that we zero in on this one, but they're all connected. Yeah, for sure. Racial justice, economic justice, hurricanes. Well, there's something that's taking place in Miami that I think should be noted is that there's a lot of community organizations that are working together. And in collaboration, you also see the platform that's been lifted across the state of Florida that has now become a national conversation around, you know, our first potential black governor. Also rights restoration, which is a big issue. We do workshops in the prison. So there's a lot of work that community organizers have been doing across the state, but then also in the city. It's in collaboration. It's in concert with each other. There's a need to change and shift the realities and the policies that are affecting everyday lives of all of us. And that's going to charge anyone to get active, to get everyone involved. And our hope is that more people get involved. We can't do this alone. It's not an individual game. It is a game that needs collective participation. So There are days when some of us get tired. There are days when some of us get weary. But our hope is that others will pick up on those days that we need to sit back and take a rest. But the work continues to need to be done. And so that's why it seems like so much. But there's a lot of people involved Mm -hmm. in making a movement happen right now across the state of Florida. Right. And that passion for diminishing that sense of isolation and abandonment is critical to this conversation. Yeah. So did the... Maroon Poetry Festival evolved from the voices? Yes. The Maroon Poetry Festival became, it wasn't even what it grew to be. And this is something that I learned in some of my mentorship from Emery Douglas of the Black Panther Party. And talking to him was that the Black Panther Party at the time that they were doing the work that they were doing, there was a sense of urgency and need to do whatever needed to be done in the moment. And things grew out of that. And then from the growth, they developed and then honed in on the things that they were doing. They were able to sit back and say, okay, this was effective in this way. We're going to put our skills towards this. And I think that's kind of the same thing that we see happening with Poetry for the People was that we saw the need for this, the urgency around it. We started to create the space for it, the resources for it to happen. 
and then in conversations around the context of poetry that we had to learn where where poetry has been used and the ways that poetry has been used for good and bad. In our workshops, we had difficult conversations. We also were experiencing the realities of gun violence and the national conversation at large about gun violence. In addition to what's happening with private prison scenario geo group here, the immigration crisis that's happening here in Florida. There was a lot that was happening at the time of us in these workshops. While we're talking about these things and dealing with these things in our workshops, we realized that there needed to be a larger showcase of what poetry could offer for our community at large so that then when we go back and we say this is why we're doing poems that there could be a community appreciation and value for that because we all need to understand that there are people who have paved the way before us there's a legacy that we walk in mm -hmm. and so these things aren't isolated it's situations it's a movement a movement happens years and years and years and years it takes time for a movement to take place so maroon poetry festival was the uh, idea that was birthed after us reading over the Black Arts Movement poets and the Jane Cortezes and the Miri Baraka and the Gil Scott Heron, the Last Poets, and um, all these incredible, Entezaki Shange, Sonia Sanchez, we sat with their words. There was a sense of urgency because your Petsi Kagatsil, who was the Black uh, poet from South Africa, who wrote a lot about African apartheid and helped in the fight against the apartheid, he passed away last January. And so we were talking about how our elders are leaving us. Our elders were were um, not going to be there much longer for us to have conversations with them, to ask the things that we needed to ask and to learn and make better decisions out of the mistakes that they learned. So this was our opportunity to gather who, whoever would come, you know, it was a call and an invitation to see who would come. And then could we sit with them and go through the things that we're dealing with in Liberty City? What are the things that we're dealing with in Little Haiti? What are the things that we're dealing with here in Florida. And so that's just like me trying to narrow down so much that has happened in such a short amount of time, but it has been a beautiful interaction and collaboration between all of these conversations we're having right now. So I see Smoke Signal Studio, Community Justice Project, and the Dream Defenders collaborated on, on Maroon this Fest Maroon Festival. Festival. Was this the first one ever? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Who might we hear from this Maroon Poetry Festival? The Last Poets, Entezaki Shange, Sonia Sanchez, and Emery Douglas of the Black Panther Party, as well as Jamila Woods and Vic Mensa. And we also had other visitor poets, Jessica Caremore, Mahogany Tiago, Brown, Tongo, Esian Martin. And, and what's the name of one of the young poets that you heard from that you thought was especially amazing? Yaya. Yaya was, oh, Yaya was incredible. She's incredible. The sad thing is that Dr. Ntozake Shange, who was with us in at in at the poetry festival, um, just passed away this weekend, and so that really dovetails off of what Aja was saying in terms of connecting with these elder poets before, you know, we we don't have them with with us anymore. And so for us, it was a great honor to have been able to share that space with her, and she was incredible. My favorite part of the the festival was the youth showcase. The, all the local businesses that were supported, the whole youth-like playground area that we had created. We, we really tried to mm -hmm. uh, imagine what a free society could look like, what a sovereign community could really be if we were living our full best selves. And so we transformed Tukulsi, that park, into... I was going to ask you, where did this take place? It was in Liberty City, the Tukulsi Center. The Belafonte Tukulsi Center. Which is on 62nd and 8th. Avenue. Northwest 961st. It was also really powerful in the context of that because it's a historically significant center as well here in Florida and in Liberty City. Belafonte, Sidney Portier, Muhammad Ali, all these people invested their resources in this center because they knew that the South was like the heart of like racist, horrible realities. And these young people needed to find some safe space, some place where they could go, where they could be protected and could learn and grow and actually be given resources to be children. Mm -hmm. And so the Tukulsi Center has, I mean, I teach in the prisons. One of our students there is like, remembers over 36 years ago, remembers being a kid in that center and the meaning that it had for him and the safe space that it was for him and his family. When he had nowhere else to go, he would go there. And it's something that I see is constantly brought up, but it's also constantly in threat and in jeopardy of being relocated or shut down, et cetera,
because, you know, a lot of our spaces are always at threat for us to be displaced. And so for us, we wanted to highlight that this space has been a center, has been a safe space. And because we had a relationship with the space, that we were able, that Liberty City is often given the, the narrative of being a place of violence and crime and all these other um, really charged and not fully true statements. But we know that the biggest thing that can help us solve crime and some of the violence that we see in our communities is programming, is resources, is is educational institutions, is arts, is like cultural implementation. And for folks to be able to still live there to enjoy it, for it not to be a part of the displacement efforts, for artists to not be brought in to then be a puppet of the developers, but for the art to be there to help communities really create and envision what kind of life they want to live for themselves and what kind of community they want. I think I w- I've just been sitting with the statement that Aja made about how our movement is collaborative statewide. And I think that's the power and the excitement of what Community Justice Project does and in this mm-hmm. real rootedness in our partners and the folks that we, we organize with and we build power with is creating a platform for communities, not just where we live, but around the world in this global moment of real hatred and violence against folks who need more, who are demanding more from their own lives, is that with art, with the law with research, we're able to reimagine the truth. Mm. And we're able to empower communities to see art as a vehicle to say their truthfulness and that it is legitimate, that it is expert, and that it can inform and enforce policy. It can inform and enforce the law. And that all of those things are, are critical to putting power back in the hands of those folks who need it. The people. Yeah. The people. Yeah. We claim this to be a democracy. In order for it to be a democracy, everybody has to be heard. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the part that continually gets left out when we talk about the quote unquote left or when we talk about people that are that are protesting or resisting in some shape or form the larger narrative of, you know, the American government or of the American history project. And I think it is a colonial project. It is a project that has been in the efforts of silencing, you know, the marginalized voices, those that are poor, black, brown. And so we have to do our best to make this a true democracy, to make it something where everyone's heard, everyone's participating. And I think that the work the Community Justice Project has done in collaboration with the community has shown that this is what democracy looks like. This is how we practice justice. This is how we practice a true equitable system is when we're actually listening and when we're actually advocating for those that are left behind. And the Maroon Poetry Festival, the irony of the statement Maroon is that Florida had one of the largest Maroon communities. And so this is a part of our history that we do not tell in America. We do not tell the history of the Maroon communities. It's American history. It's not some like foreign other history. It's a part of American history. It is the history of slaves. It is the history of of freed Africans who escaped into the swamps, into the mountains, into the the rural areas that the quote-unquote whites would not go, quote-unquote townsmen would not go, go because they wanted to live sovereign lives, because they wanted to live lives that were demonstrating and imagining something outside of the status quo, outside of the structure that we were told was civilization. And so I think in researching that history and in conjuring that history in are like calling forth our indigenous community as well, knowing that Standing Rock recently happened, knowing like all the things that have been taking place in our country, we've always been a part of collaborating with each other. There's just an assumption that we try to make everything so divisive, but there has been a history of marginalized indigenous folks collaborating with each other to try to envision a new way of governing, a new way of living with one another that's equitable for everyone. And we're conjuring that up with the festival. That's part of what the festival's efforts are. You've all mentioned the the importance of the intersection between art and culture and community. One of the reasons why we've almost taken solace in or resorted to the arts or to poetry is that we find that as lawyers, people don't necessarily question what is legal. They don't question to see whether that what is legal is actually just or not. You know, does the law actually produce justice? And what we find oftentimes is that in the poetry, in the music, in theater, in, in other art forms, the artist is interrogating. Is what we're seeing, is the way that our society is structured, is it actually just? We 
are then constructing, as Aja was mentioning, other more liberatory realities. What might it be if we put our best imaginations on these problems? And these problems are not problems that have simple solutions. And so the question that we're posing to Miami and to the world more generally is, how can we be creative in dealing with the most intractable issues that we have going on here? Too often, the community is brought into the conversation much later, and they're given three options or two options, and it's pick one. And that's not the way that we're going to solve these problems, because the people who are most directly impacted by things have solutions. And there are a whole lot of other people who sit on the sidelines and are like, oh, well, that's really unjust, but there's nothing we can do. The question is, you know, how might we, all of us as people in Miami, actually put ourselves at the service of folks who are most marginalized and who, who bear the brunt of this unequal system or inequitable system that we're in? How might we actually come together to, to create something different and new, equitable, just, and free, I guess, to use that word. And so it's not something that we have an answer to, but the question is, why can't we experiment? And why can't we put our best minds together to create something? We're better? not single-issue people, you know? Like, right. that's, the, that's the biggest thing. I think I've talked to people who look at these issues that we're talking about in very, like, blanket ways, and they're like, well, if they're poor and they can't afford their house, then they need to move. And it's like, the rationale that people have is so limited in scope. And so what that means is that, as you said, like, as you were saying, like, oh, there's so much y'all are doing. It's like, there's so much work to be done, you know? So there's no time to be sitting on the sidelines talking about, well, it's too much work out there. Like, mm -hmm. if you're not involved, if you're not trying to get involved, then you need to be. And if you're not trying to get involved, then you have no right to say anything about what's happening in the world around you. Mm -hmm. You need to just keep going on with your blinders and stop causing more issues to the rest of us that have too much work already on our place to be doing. So either you get involved or you just shut up and don't say nothing about what we're trying to do. Because honestly, we don't need more spectators. Mm. We need people that are in the game that want to see how we can effectively work together to make something change. That's the end goal, change. In this like very exciting electoral moment, I would um, really urge people to be thoughtful about how we continue to build more worlds, how we continue to be creative about bringing institutions and in service to people, not leaving November with the sort of tagline that we have to keep people, we have to keep politicians and, and entities accountable to people by asking people to consistently lobby and, and hope and pray and plead with the folks that are there to serve them, but instead with art, with movement lawyering and, and with truthfulness, encourage our own communities to turn themselves, to orient themselves towards the world that we're building. So I guess a question for everyone, you know, what does the best possible future look like? Hmm. I wanted to piggyback off of what Aja was mentioning earlier about this idea of spectator. And it's not so much as a spectator, it's more about conditioning. We've been conditioned to think that we have this either or scenario that, you know, people need to move out. When in actuality, if we are really talking about the benefits and the prosperity of development, of capitalism, that should ideally it should benefit everybody. And so if there's enough room, if there, this area is really going to grow, if there's going to be more construction, it should benefit the people who are here also. There's room for everyone. There's opportunities that can be presented to more people, speaking to power, essentially. You know, that's what we're discussing in terms of the possibilities because there is a lot of potential here. There is uh, the propaganda of urban development and gentrification and renewal can be modified, let's just say. You don't have to move people out. You really don't. There are solutions. requires a lot of creativity. There's words need to be chosen and communicated and people need to understand that prosperity can be beneficial for everyone and not just the people in the very top. It can serve people in the bottom. There is value in Little Haiti, there's value in Overtown, there's value in Liberty City, in its history, in its uniqueness. It doesn't have to be this cookie cutter, banal model that we've gone through in the past. It's something that can, can be used in a good way. What does it look like? It looks like a place where people have the ability to self-determine, everybody is active, everybody, people care about each other. It's a society that's based on human rights, empathy, redistribution of wealth, community land trusts, 
more cooperatives where people have cooperative businesses, where people have a say how their business runs and everybody gets uh, equal say in where money goes, etc. We're talking about more collectivism, you know, less individualism and more collectivism where folks actually are participating. And when people aren't participating, we question why. And we do our efforts to engage participation versus being like, we're going to make it more difficult for you to participate. There's room for us to do more than just programming, but to do outreach. Representation is a means, not the end. Okay, so like us talking about, because they'll use certain icons in certain communities to be the voice of an entire group of people. You can't do that. You can't just call Al Sharpton and be like, answer for all black people. You can't just call uh, Marlene and be like, answer for all Haitian people. You can't just call me and be like, answer for all poets. Like there are layers and, and nuances to people's voices. And so you, when you care about a community, you care about the community, not just a representative of the community. We must love one another, support one another. We have nothing to lose, nothing to lose but our chains. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. The artists, poets, and activists we introduce today reveal the power of contemporary creativity to address the impact of gentrification in urban communities around the world. Visit communityjusticeproject.com to find out more about Miami's Community Justice Project. Fresh Art International is a radio show and a podcast. We release new episodes weekly. Every Wednesday morning, we bring you a web streaming radio program on joltradio.org. You can listen to our stories anytime. Visit freshartinternational.com or explore the archive anywhere you go for podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, Please subscribe, rate, and review our program. It means a lot to know you're listening. Thanks to followers like you, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. We invite you to support our stories. Gifts from followers and grants from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, and the Locust Project's Wavemaker Grant through the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Arts are vital to our work. If you would like to join our community of supporters, go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.